If you've tuned into WHI today, you're probably aware that clinician burnout is at a record high and on everybody's mind. The same issues that drive burnout also diminish joy in the healthcare workforce, and that impacts quality and patient safety. That's why we're proud to invite you to join the Joy and Work Track at this year's IHI National Forum, with sessions and courses designed to provide you with the tools and resources to enable your workforce to not just survive, but to thrive. You can explore the Joy and Work Track and others at this year's forum over at IHI.org slash formtracks. iChai's National Forum is being held this December in Orlando, Florida. I'll be there in my blue shirt, and so will all of today's guests, and many guests from past wonderful WHI programs. Also, starting in March, iChai will be offering Finding and Creating Joy in Work, a 12-week virtual course that takes a broad look at turning engagement into joy in work at your organization. This course will provide you with the tools and knowledge to turn burnout into engagement, as well as the framework for testing change that will lead to greater joy in work and improvement in patient safety and other vital outcomes. Both the forum and our new Joy and Work course are great opportunities to take a new approach to a tough problem. We hope to see you there. Now, here's WHI. There's a steady drumbeat of news and research these days about health professionals being burned out. A lot of it focuses on the U.S. situation, but many of the issues, exhaustion, depression, and disillusionment among doctors, nurses, and other staff are evident in other countries, too. The circumstances have almost this kind of gravitational pull, so much so sometimes it's hard to imagine what, if anything, could possibly help. Acknowledging that health professionals are feeling the effects of simultaneous evolutions and expectations pertaining to payment, populations, care delivery, technology, and quality may be apt, but it doesn't really change these realities or the workday. So what might? What can make what seems unbearable much, much more manageable? IHI and some others have come up with a strategy they've dubbed Improving Joy in Work, and that's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And I do want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live bi-weekly, and then after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I also am IHI's Director of Communications. Now, if you find the idea of joy in work either flaky or positively annoying, given the day you've been having or had yesterday, we're especially glad you're here and willing to entertain the possibility that even the biggest barriers may, with some support, not be so big after all. And if you're a healthcare leader, you might be surprised to learn how much you can do for your staff, with your staff, initially by your willingness to ask meaningful questions and to listen. More on all of that coming up and our introductions. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier, and he's going to remind all of you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks a lot, Madge. Um, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panel and your colleagues on the WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. 
If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. Their number is on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Mitch. All right. Thanks, John. And we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so others can be involved in the conversation. Well, the stars aligned. It's amazing. And the entire panel is here with me in the studio in person. And that's a real treat. I'm going to start with Barbara Ballack, is the co-founder of Afina Partners, an organization committed to healthcare transformation. She's also senior faculty at IHI, a former member of the National Patient Safety Foundation Board of Advisors, and faculty for Arizona State University's Executive Fellowship in Innovation Health leadership. Barbara knows a thing or two about being a leader and working with leaders and staff. So welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks, Madge. Okay. Julie Mann is here. She is the Assistant Director of Midwifery and Project Manager of Quality Improvement on Labor and Delivery at Mount Auburn Hospital, which is just down the street from us here in Cambridge. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Jessica Perlow is the Network Director for the IHI Open School, an effort that provides health students and professionals with skills they can use to become change leaders. She is also a member of the leadership team of 100 Million Healthier Lives and the director of IHI's Joy in Work portfolio. She was a big help with me on this program. Welcome, Jess. Thanks, Matt. And IHI's president and CEO, Derek Feely, is here. He rounds out our panel. His experience with leadership and what good leaders do, how they behave, is long and deep, and it certainly preceded his joining IHI in 2013. Derek is a former director general for health and social care in the Scottish government, and he's also a former chief executive of the National Health Service in Scotland. Welcome, Derek. Thank you, Matt. Good to be with you again. Terrific. All right. So Derek's going to lead off, and I'm asking Derek, why have we, IHI and many others we've been working with, decided to talk about joy in work? Why not talk about burnout? Well, we do talk about burnout, Madge, uh, but that's really in the category of necessary but not sufficient in our view. And you touched on this in your introduction, actually, where you talked about that, uh, the need to escape the gravitational pull. And so we felt we needed some disruption here. We needed to do something that was different, that would get people's attention uh, and genuinely engage people. Uh, And so that's where the idea of joy and work came from. But joy and work is not a new thing at all. Um, the, our, um, the founders of improvement science have been talking about joy for many, many years. If, if anyone on the WHI uh, today has been in the IHI offices, as soon as you step out of our elevators, then you can see that part of what we're trying to do is to create joy in the healthcare workforce. Uh, Deming said that management's aim should be to create a system where people can uh, take joy in their work. And so we're repurposing 
that concept of joy and work for our purpose. And so we, and we're also building on the shoulders of some of the people who have thought more generally in sociology and beyond about what creates well-being. So this quote from Antonovsky, I think, is relevant here. So just as health is more than the absence of disease, so we believe that joy is more than just the absence of burnout. Important as it is to tackle those issues around burnout, we can do more. We can be more ambitious. We can really push the boundaries of what is achievable. And that needs to be done. There's a bl- there's a burning platform out there. If we look at the data, uh, and we looked at this through the lens of epidemiology, th- this is at epidemic proportions. Uh, 60% of respondents in an MD survey considering leaving practice. Uh, It's an issue that transcends the medical professions. It's an issue in nursing and in pharmacy, as well as it is in uh, the physician workload. And it has uh, not yet got the attention I think it deserves. And so that's another reason why we want to really energize this conversation about joy and work so that it can get the leadership attention that it needs in a somewhat congested leadership agenda. And of course, there's good business reasons for doing this. What we re- we know that there are well-documented relationships between a highly engaged and we would suggest joyful workforce and uh, a whole set of things, including uh, outcomes for patients, productivity of, of the organisation, the amount of accidents and turnover in the healthcare workforce. And if you just look at that uh, data point about the cost of recruiting and uh, a new physician at around a million dollars. And you think about that prior data that 60% of MDs in that survey are thinking about leaving, you can see that there's uh, potentially an enormous business case for focusing on joy. Uh, and then crucially from our point of view, because uh, IHI it, it exists to improve health and healthcare worldwide, we are interested in the impact that burnout has on patients. And we really want to explore how creating joy in our healthcare workforce could lead to significantly better patient outcomes, could lead to enhanced levels of empathy, to fewer errors and to a sense of real uh, mutuality around patient outcomes where that that relationship between the patient and the caregiver is enhanced. So that's quite a long answer to your very simple question about why focus on joy, Madge, but that's why we're doing it. Well, I, I think you, uh, that's, it's very, very helpful, and I think it's a common uh, refrain, um, and so much of the literature is uh, does a lot of reinforcement of the burnout things. So we're trying to see if uh, what you're describing here is that we're trying to see if we can take this in a new uh, direction and open up some other kinds of corridors. Um, it's amazing. I do think what happens when you start to think, uh, well, I was looking at something earlier, what could we do now? Um, when you sit down with somebody and talk about all your frustrations, and that can really open something up. All right, I want to turn next to Jess Perlow, who, uh, as we said earlier, is kind of managing this whole portfolio of work, and you've been on it, Jess, for uh, pretty much since the beginning, I I think. 
IHI recently published a white paper. It's called IHI Framework for Improving Joy in Work. It is directed at leaders. And I thought I would start off by asking Jess why that focus uh, on leaders. Why did we decide to kind of direct uh, at least some of our initial materials there? Thanks, Jess. Yeah, thank you, Madge. Um, So we're not solely focused on leaders, and our definition of leader is pretty broad. Um, But everyone has a part to play to ensure a more joyful workplace, and you'll see that in the framework. Um, But from Derek's experience in leading NHS Scotland, and as we engaged with partners in thinking about this work, um, we found there were some good reasons to focus on leaders. Um, One, they were asking for it. They are asking for it. And our most forward-thinking leaders and partners know that engagement is key to their efficacy and that a lack of joy is hindering their ability, as Derek said, to achieve triple aim results. Um, But... uh, it can feel like a chasm between their current state and a joyful workplace. You can even see people cringe sometimes when you say joy. Um, So we knew leaders needed a path for how to get there. Um, Second, so much of the burden of staff well-being is often put on human resources or the individual. So you know this, like wellness programs that add subsidies for um, gym memberships or encourage resilience. And these are important, um, but they're just one part of a constellation of efforts at every level needed to assure joy and well-being in our workplaces. So ultimately, it's senior leaders who are accountable for this and for ensuring that this is a responsibility at every level of the organization. So given this, um, we wanted to give leaders uh, a few steps to get there. And that's why this model looks like a staircase. So for those listening, you can see this is also in our white paper. Um, The steps show that each step serves as a foundation for the step that follows. Um, They're not overly complicated. And in a lot of ways, this is really intuitive. Um, You just start by asking people what matters to them. It's not a Q&A, but a Q&L. So it's asking and listening um, to uncover what matters to people and why they care. Um, It can also be a forward-looking exercise about what's possible. So this is where appreciative inquiry is helpful. Um, Next, the second step, leaders identify what's getting in the way of their good days. What are the processes, issues, or circumstances that are impediments to what matters? The pebbles in the shoes um, that are getting in the way. And in doing this, you might uncover there are things that need to be addressed first. So barriers that inhibit physical or psychological safety, meaning and purpose, choice and autonomy, camaraderie. Um, These are essentially, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, more fundamental human needs that require the greatest attention. Um, Then you'll get to step three, which is commit to a shared responsibility for removing these impediments. So you create partnerships, multidisciplinary when possible, and opportunities for people to come together and share responsibility for removing these impediments and for improving and sustaining joy. And lastly, we encourage leaders and staff to use improvement science to accelerate improvement and to help them determine if the changes they're testing are actually leading to an improvement um, or if they're effective in different programs or departments or clinics or if they're sustainable. So that's really the how of the framework. Um, It's not meant to ignore the larger organizational issues that exist, things like the impact of electronic health records functionality on clinicians' daily work or workload or staffing issues. But instead, the steps are trying to empower local teams to identify and address impediments that they can change. So the process converts the conversation from, you know, if only they would, to, well, what can we do today? 
Um, so it helps everyone in the organization see this as an us and not a them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would imagine, Jess, this also kind of disrupts already, starting right with that What Matters to You, which Barbara's about to talk about. It disrupts sometimes the way in which things fester in organizations, often in isolation uh, yeah. and, and reinforce. I'm sure you've heard, uh, you've gotten a lot of that. That's the hope. Yeah, right. Jess, is, during Q&A or a little later in the hour, um, if we have time, I want just to maybe describe some of the neat things in the back of the white paper, which are really quite granular tools for ways to have the conversation and action steps and plans. So I think people really who worked on this, and uh, that's part of our group here, uh, really wanted folks to uh, use this in some ways as a guide. So hopefully we can get to that. But the links are there for you also to peruse uh, the white paper. All right. I want to turn to Barbara next. Uh, and as we planned this show, we realized we we're not going to be able, how could we possibly get into all of this in depth? But that first step, what matters to you? can be one uh, where there's a lot of stumbling uh, and a lot of awkwardness. And so I was thinking, Barbara, that I can imagine that staff leaders would be nervous. They're not sure what are they going to hear? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? Staff may not know if they can really trust uh, being all that frank. So I can imagine a lot of caution signs. So how do we possibly make it work? Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Madge. Well, I know, and having been in those shoes before, some leaders are uncomfortable about how to start the conversations and have some cautions about how to do it effectively. Uh, you can just invent all sorts of stories in your head about how this might go. Um, so let's talk about key steps to help you and your colleagues enjoy these conversations about what matters and not get into a bundle about them. Um, the first thing that I would say is, is in learning from the prototype sites and from others, know that your colleagues are eager and often hungry for these conversations. And my best guess is many have never been asked this question about what matters to them and their work. So the first point I'll make is don't be surprised if people pause and kind of look at you. Um, they may not know exactly what you mean. Um, in our prototype um, settings, we've learned that our colleagues are willing to involve, engage in pro- solving problems that get in the way of a good day. Um, those things that interfere that with what matters to them, that waste their time and are frustrating to them and their team members. We also know that working on pebbles offers hope that their daily lives will get better rather than dealing with those same pebbles over and over again. Um, secondly, we often assume that we and leaders, no matter what our role is, are skilled in having effective conversations. And I might advance that that's a false assumption. Um, it's rarely a skill that we get help to develop. So it recognize it as a great leadership skill, but one that takes some time to develop. These are what matters conversations are about effective listening to understand. They're not about being in charge. They're not about having to be right or jumping in to fix things or fixing it all ourselves. Um, I know that as an executive leader, I ask leaders to have conversation with team members about, say, an engagement survey or a safety culture survey. And they and I were not equipped to handle them well. We 
created problems we didn't have to have. And we learned better ways, and our prototype teams did also. So just as when we ask patients what matters, these conversations are about listening and understanding through others' eyes. Um, then working on things together, using improvement skills to remove the pebbles that get in the way. Um, there are a few simple steps for all leaders to take to prepare for great what matters conversation. First, recognizing there's often three cautions that come up. One is, what if they ask for things I can't do? Another part of that might be some problems are way beyond me, like, oh, yes, I'm going to fix the whole electronic health record. Ain't going to happen. Second, how am I going to fix all the pebbles they identify? One colleague described it at, as hearing the beeping sound of a dump truck backing up, <laughs> overloading her with all these problems. And what goes along with that is I'm way too busy already. And a second part of that may be I don't think I have the skills to do this. And then the third caution is, oh, my goodness, I'll just hear from the negative voices. And part of that is a fear that the negative voices will dominate the conversations and I won't know how to handle it. Those are tough conversations when those come up. Now, there's a conversation guide in the white paper and that, that can help people. We tried to get a do and a don't and steps to try. Um, these conversations should be a source of joy for leaders. It shouldn't be a burden. And we've had people have some great time with that. So um, I'll highlight just a few things, um, if I can, to help you get started. If you remember as a kid, if you had a race, you'd have this get ready, set, go. Well, this is the get ready, set part before <laughs> you go with the four steps that Jessica talked about. The get ready part is first pay attention to your own sources of joy and work and share them with your team. You have to be able to model the way for others to know what is this all about, what this means to me. So asking yourself, why are you in healthcare and what are your sources of joy? Remember, you can't model what you don't have. So if you drag yourself into work every day and start talking about joy, no one is going to believe you. Um, one wonderful leader I know, DJ Shrivener, a senior director at Omaha Children's, started small by opening her meetings with her team with my moment of joy yesterday. It's simple. It's heartfelt. points to positive things already underway in their care settings. Second, be clear on the why. Why are you doing this and why are you doing it now? And I think certainly Derek, Jessica gave great examples of why we're doing it. But you need to be able to put that in your own language. Why is this important? Because for our colleagues to change, to engage in things, they have to understand why. Third, make sure leaders have the capacity to identify and address the pebbles. A big mistake would be to ask what matters and identify pebbles and then do nothing about it. It risks cynicism. Someone could say, see, they really don't care about this at all. So two capacities really keep coming up over and over again is one is the time and the skills to improve. So if you haven't secured the time a little bit of time and the skills to improve in daily work, make sure you get those secured and then start asking those what matters questions. And finally, 
figure out where the boulders go. I distinguish between pebbles and boulders. So boulders are the electronic health record. They're staffing or workload. Our physicians or nurses or pharmacists might identify. You need a senior leader that you can turn to to route those issues. So make sure you have a way to um, redirect those issues rather than just letting them sit there and fester. As a side note, uh, sometimes when you work to listen and understand issues, what seem like boulders can be addressed at a local level. One of our clinic prototype sites discovered that what physicians thought was an electronic health record issue was really a team communication issue that they could address in their clinic. And then, of course, they shared it with the other sites in their system. So I'll pause there. So the next after addressing those four would be to get into those steps. Okay. So we have a go slide. I just want to, um, uh, these are makes a good day. Why decided some of that, I guess, is in the white paper as well. Kind of, uh, I like, I like those too. Don't forget if, if we've gone through these slides a little too quickly, remember you can download them, uh, now because there's a link in the chat or you can download them, uh, when you get off the show today. You'll be prompted and there will certainly be posted on our website, uh, tomorrow. Well, there have been themes. Thank you, Barbara. There have been themes coming up here. Here. Uh, I don't know if Julie's been nodding, but I've been uh, nodding a little bit as I uh, just know a little bit about what's going on for her. Uh, maybe you could describe uh, very quickly what it's meant to be a prototyping site. Uh, but Julie um, kind of has the example of leaders and managers finding out the hard way that they didn't really think through what to do with all the issues once they were brought up. Uh, so uh, I'll let her tell you what happened at Mount Auburn Hospital. Thanks, Julie. Sure. Thank you. So at Mount Auburn Hospital in the labor and delivery unit, uh, we had a unique uh, setting about two years ago in 2015, where we had doubled our numbers of births. We had doubled our staff, which created a diversity of ideas. We did not increase our space, which we worked in, and we had more acute patients. So this created sort of a perfect storm of um, staff members feeling discontent, unhappy, um, disrespected by colleagues, um, and everyone was a little bit stressed. And so we had a wonderful leadership who said, we need to do something about this. Um, we have no choice. And so um, they issued a survey to all staff members that was based on a culture of safety, 10 questions. And we got great response rates. 70% uh, of our staff members responded. And then from that data, we gathered a group of nurses, midwife, doctors, um, uh, scrub techs and unit secretaries to look over that data and to analyze what what's happening here. What are people feeling? And they came up with, we sort of have a crisis of culture here. We, um, we have three main issues we need to address. And one is tolerance and respect of each other um, within disciplines and across disciplines. The other was communication. How are we communicating respectfully to each other um, and to our patients? Um, and are we communicating compassionately with each other? And then uh, the third issue was structural issues, um, mainly that spatial issue of there's not enough computers, there's not enough chairs, there's not enough space to have breaks. Um, and I think you're seeing on some of your slides here some of the, the comments that staff members gave that were um, that were intense and, and very meaningful to us and, and eye-opening. 
And so that was our get ready set. <laughs> and we had no go. Um, and so we took a pause. Um, you know, these were these were not quick fixes for us. And, you know, changing a culture is huge. And so we thought, what do we do? And we didn't do anything for about a year. Mm. And it wasn't that we weren't interested. It was just that we just didn't know what to do. And there was lots of discussions behind closed doors with administration, but nothing was visible to staff. And so that built, um, as Barbara uh, mentioned, some cynicism, some frustration and anger. And so here the staff put themselves out and nothing happened. And so we had this year of buildup. And then finally, it came to a point where uh, the director of our department came to myself and a colleague and said, can you do something with this? So then there was myself and my colleague thinking, what do we do? And we thought, one, we need to um, to create a mission based on the data that we collected in the surveys. What, are, what do we want to be about? So we created this mission statement. And then we also felt like we needed a, to rebuild trust with the staff that, yes, we do care. You're, we listen to you and we want to work on what you told us matters to you. And so we found out very quickly that um, – no one really checks the emails that we send out. And so we thought, how are we gonna how are we gonna communicate with everyone? So we developed a communi- a central communication board in our break room on labor and delivery that everyone goes to. And um, we put up there our mission statement. We put up there all the suggestions they gave us that they wanted to see change and what matters to them. And then we said, here's what we're working on. And here's what's next up in line. And then we asked for volunteers to participate. So there was transparency in who was invited. You volunteered and there was their name up on the board. And then we put some just uh, a space for news and announcements. And then um, from there, that built some engagement and trust. And we started to create quick wins, very small, doable projects that people could start to see, ah, they do care. Something's happening. One of those was a spatial thing. We took up the carpet in the nurse's station and we took down some glass walls that created a little bit more airiness. Um, And then the next thing we did was we looked at our board rounds, which we have daily um, to talk about situational awareness and patient care. And people felt like those were disrespectful. The space we held them in was um, too small. You couldn't hear and they were just way too long. So we took a look at those, made some quick changes to those. And four weeks later, asked everyone to give us feedback on those changes. And lo and behold, people said, this is so much better. And then we built upon that and we started to, um, we developed an annual OBGYN award for respect and teamwork and compassion that was based on our mission statement. And we got 25 colleagues um, submitting other colleagues' names of people that they thought embodied that mission statement. And they wrote, wrote beautiful essays on why they embody respect, teamwork, and compassion. And we presented that award to um, one of our scrub techs um, at our annual holiday um, uh, gathering. And then we felt like we've ha- built up enough momentum and engagement and um hope in our staff members to move on to something that was a little bit more difficult and addressing tolerance and respect and communication with each other. And so that's when we looked at a few different communication training programs and decided on uh, 
Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, uh, also called compassionate communication. And we developed a training program for all 130 staff members to attend. We got it approved by our malpractice insurance, and we got continuing education credits for everyone who attended or is attending. And then we uh, developed an IRB-approved study to measure um, the pre-training um, perceptions of respect, teamwork, and compassion by staff, but also by patients and family members, and then a post, uh, post-training um, surveys of uh, patients, staff members, and, and their family members on their perception of teamwork, respect, and compassion. So right now we are at the, uh, we're just starting the training for compassionate communication with all staff. So we do have some pre-training data um, that is really hopeful and exciting for us. Um, so the um, the survey that was done in 2015 where we really saw the issues that were at stake here and um, so we have that data, and then we have it with our pre-training um, data surveys that we just issued about a month ago. And people, indeed, in just trying to do some of those quick wins, um, those quick doable um, changes, felt that, indeed, respect was increasing, teamwork was increasing. And we will survey everyone um, six months after all the trainings are done. And so that's where we're at. And a few things that we learned on the ground um, and Barbara mentioned um, already, but that, um, you know, if you start asking what matters to you um, and what's important, um, have a plan to act. (laughs) Um, Don't have that pause of a year that we had. Um, It will really set you back. And um, so important to build trust and transparency. So however you might do that, um, know that that's such an important piece. Um, and then, um, you know, it's very easy to get daunted by the work, you know, and we thought, wow, we need to change the way people talk and treat each other. That's huge. Um, but start, start small, uh, start small with little, little changes that people can see that are doable. It makes you feel good, but it also, um, you know, shows everyone that this can work. And then, um, sinking in the negativity, we had a lot of that in the beginning. And, um, so how did we as leaders get ourselves out of that, but how did we get everyone else out of that? And Barbara actually gave us some great advice on don't ask for comments right away. Um, Just start doing some things. And if people want to give comments, say, you know, I know this is important to you. I know you have a lot of feedback, but can you just wait a little bit? Let's trial something. And then we'll have a formal session for feedback and you can give it all to us. Thank you so much. Um, this is obviously something that went on or has gone on uh, over a, a good period of time. And so we're getting the very distilled version of it. Um, so I hope you have some questions. Everyone who's joined us today for Julie, Derek, Jess, and Barbara, uh, this is the moment to chat into all participants. And uh, if you don't chat into all participants, we're going to miss out and make sure you're in the chat uh, format here. Don't be in Q&A, although John will try and uh, send them our way. All right. Well, um, I just want to ask one quick question uh, about something we were looking at with Julie's slides that maybe Julie can answer, or maybe uh, Barbara, you might have a thought on this. 
when you have overwhelmingly, so you get some good agrees and you start to see things really moving in a, a good direction, but you do still have a clump of people who say things have not gotten any better. And uh, I was wondering how you deal with that. Uh, I don't know if Julie can talk about Mount Auburn Hospital, but I even in general um, ideas. In other words, to make sure that everybody is brought along. Well, maybe I'll start and Julie can chime in because she has lots of great examples. I, uh, I think what a lot of people have experienced is they just, you, you see that person walking down the hall and you just want to dash into the bathroom and lock the door until they have gone down the hall. Um, they're the person who's always willing to offer what's not going right and maybe are a little short on the what could go better. Um, first and foremost, I always think in my head, they're frustrated about the, some of the same things I am. So maybe having that conversation about, you know, I'm frustrated too, whereas sometimes we as leaders try and talk ourselves out of that or talk themselves, them out of it, um, but saying you're agreeing with them. Uh, secondly, um, Julie made a great point about how do you make uh, things very transparent, very visible. Um, uh, Julie and other prototype settings made great use of sticky notes. Um, as far as here are the pebbles that have been brought up, um, here are the bright spots and the assets too, and making those really visible. So helping um, some of our more negative voices see, you know, this has already been brought up and um, here's where it is on our plans to tackle things so that you see some signs of things moving forward. Um, and these also may be the colleagues who tend to use very strong, very broad statements. They never, it always, um, and having them help you, uh, my favorite statement is, help me understand what that looks like. Can you talk about a few more specifics so we know where to start with it? Because all uh, often, those always or never statements are incredibly broad. Julie, what would you add to that? I think one thing that we did was, um, you know, we didn't you know, dart into the bathroom if we saw that person coming down the hallway because we, we realize that they are the loud voices and people listen to those people and they can really bring up a group or bring down a group. So we started to engage them and we, um, as difficult as it was at times, invited them into the meetings and open discussion and then tried to, you know, steer discussions on, yes, yes, I hear you. What do you think you can do to help us with this? And try and... Uh, I don't want to say, I say challenge, but it wasn't a challenge, but try to ask them how can they contribute in a positive way and bring them in that way. Um, and we're still doing it. And, and also, I think we have to accept that we cannot um, please everyone and convert everyone. And we can't always listen to those loud voices that, um, you know, are reminding us that we're not doing everything. And so paying attention to some of those positive voices more than the, the, the louder ones. Great. Thank you. All right. We're getting a lot of uh, fabulous questions. Um, here's one that's, <laughs> I think a lot of us have uh, experienced this working, not necessarily working in healthcare. What if your senior leader is the boulder? You're looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> I just somehow have this feeling that maybe you've dealt with that, <laughs> not because you're the boulder, but, uh, you know, that that's come to your attention. Yeah. So there's, that's, a, that's a problem. If you have that situation, then there's no, there's no point in pretending otherwise. Uh, and 
however, there are some things that you can do, even if your senior leaders don't want to get involved in, uh, in joint work. Because as Jess said, in her remarks, there are, um, there are a set of things that we can all do. There are a set of things that um, can work effectively in small teams and in management groups. And then there are a set of things that are going to be difficult to shift unless senior leaders really get involved. And so uh, doing things that create a sense of camaraderie and teamwork, you you can do with or without your, your senior leaders. Uh, building some of, the, of this into your daily improvement work is something you can do with or without the support of your senior leaders. Just creating uh, the space for people to talk about this. Um, you know, it was, uh, I was struck by Julie saying that they, they found space in the break room. That's where so many of these conversations happen, in my experience. So you can do all of that without y your leadership. The stuff that's going to be really difficult for you uh, uh, are the really important things about connection to purpose and, uh, and really the cultural piece, again, that um, both Julie and Barbara talked about. Those are, those are difficult things to shift without senior leader in, uh, engagement. And, uh, and so my advice to people who are struggling with senior leaders who are the, um, the boulders is, um, one, their strength in numbers. So as, as I would recommend to anybody who was starting any kind of improvement work, start with where you can find the will to change. So find peers, find colleagues, and don't try and tackle this on your own. Uh, second thing, go back to what uh, uh, some of the material that uh, I spoke about in my introduction. There's a business case for this. There's a, there's a dividend that uh, can be got that will improve patient outcomes. Even if your leader doesn't really want to do this for purposes of joy and work, perhaps he or she will want to do it because it'll improve the bottom line or it'll improve the quality of care or it'll improve the HCAP score. Um, so make your pitch on that basis. Mm -hmm. That I'm just going to tag on one more quick thing. Somebody in the chat was saying, is it better with healthcare leaders to emphasize more of a moral case, more the quality of, of the workplace as opposed to the business case uh, to sort of get more at, are we tapping into something different and maybe even better? So I think we have a major advantage in healthcare when it comes to trying to create joy in work. And that is that we are in a caring profession where empathy and, uh, and a sense of mutual benefit is right at the very heart of what we do. And that's why I think joy is achievable in healthcare in a way that it is more difficult to achieve in some other industries. Having said that, leaders are people too. And so they're different. Uh, and, and, and frankly, if what it takes to get a leader involved is to make the business case for them, I would make the business case uh, because um, I'd rather they were drawn in for uh, a different reason than they were not drawn into the work at all. Thank you. Barbara, did you want to add something? Well, if you've listened to Derek often enough, you hear him talk about both and. <laughs> and I think that question is a both and. It's first 
and foremost the right thing to do. It's that moral purpose. And by taking care of ourselves, we're better able to take care of others. So I think there's a way to do it both. And and uh, I think Derek emphasizes some people will listen to different aspects differently. Um, but if it opens the door, that's the door to go through. So emphasizing both and is um, what I would echo from Derek. Okay, thanks. Jess, let me see if this is something you might be able to address from some of the prototyping sites or others you've spoken with. There are a couple questions here relating to methods and for those what matter, uh, what matters to you uh, kinds of conversations and wondering, uh, is the one-on-one kind of the most almost intense kind of uh, engagement to have and are there other ways to do it? Can you do these things in small groups? Uh, can can you uh, sort of bubble up what you need to know uh, in surveys? Might people even be more candid? I don't know if you uh, have some initial thoughts. I can also ask Julie, too. No, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so, I, again, I think it's a both and. Um, oftentimes, the data you have is an excellent baseline and a place to start to drill in and have conversations to discover more. Um, there's also kind of a, a, a case to be made for an asset-based approach. So you can look at what's working, where are their joyful spots, and then learn from them. Um, but generally speaking, with regard to measurement, it's best to, to kind of pair system level measures with local measures. So at the system level, a lot of places have satisfaction, engagement, turnover, retention, um, uh, lots of different absenteeism, lots of things you can look at um, to review annually and to help um, identify areas for improvement. Um and then some local level measures. And so these can be in conversations. And I think someone said in the chat, too, that stories are a really great way to motivate and to learn. Um, and then also in groups. And I think Barbara and Julie were both a part of prototyping. And we heard a lot um, how people were really pairing both where they had their conversations in public spaces. So they felt open and transparent and people could join. Um, but also one on one with supervisors just asking not what's the matter, but really, why are you doing this work? Here's why I'm doing it. And you start to explore, you know, shared values and interests and then build off of those. Great. Thank you. Well, Julie, there is quite a... <laughs> You could be on the hot seat here. There are so many questions for you. Uh, somebody wanted, in the best sense, a hot seat uh, about IRB approval. Um, I think there are also some uh, questions having to do with, whoops, I got to get here. I'm struck by some things that I think are, are all part of the process here. Somebody's asking about apathetic staff. Somebody is saying that administration and physicians are often at odds. How do you deal with that? Uh, these big kind of <laughs> things that do go on in organizations, uh, there's no doubt about it. So uh, I don't know, are, are we being a bit naive to kind of barrel through that stuff? I mean, I'm sure you heard, hear that too. I mean, I was thinking about the disrespect issue, uh, which can be a big one, depending on what people's roles are uh, in a department. Uh, let's start with the easy one about IRB approval. So how we how we achieved it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, well, we you know we felt like what we were doing matters, and we wanted to show um, talking about leadership and administration. We wanted to show that this is important and it does make a change. And so, not only, we're focusing on our staff interacting with each other and how they relate to each other, but we know that there. are 
are other things that we can measure from this. How are patients perceiving um, the care that they give after we really invest in our staff members? And how are their family members? Um, you know, in labor and birth, we have many family members in the room as a baby is being born. And how are they um, treated? And how are they communicated with? And so we felt that that was a very rich area to to explore. So we have, um, we're surveying both patients and family members with a validated study. Um, and, and then we also, um, w- talking about sort of um, leadership and what matters to them, and is it a financial issue, um, you know, do you have to make that case? We did incorporate um, a hospital attachment survey that is also a validated survey to look at after you invest in staff members, are they more apt to stay with this hospital? Do they feel that this hospital cares about them? And we put that in um, our IRB study because we felt like that's of interest to the CEO of the hospital. And, and if we want to take this to other departments, that that matters, you know, um, turnover rate, reducing that is really important. Okay, good. I I mentioned some of the apathetic staff here, but I, I, I'm i going to go to Derek and then I'll, I'll swing back. Derek, some thoughts about apathetic staff or a perception of that. Yeah. So, and I think this is also um, relevant to the, uh, the leadership question that was also asked. And Barbara talked a little bit about this in her intervention earlier. It's that whole issue about why. So why are we doing this? Why is this important? Uh, It's that connection to purpose. And one of the reasons that we stress so much in uh, in our white paper about the importance of connection to purpose is that is the the glue that can bind all of these collective efforts together that's what connects the leaders to the um, staff at the point of care. It's what uh, the administrators and the clinical staff have in common is this shared sense of purpose that we do work that is about uh, in, in improving care for our patients. Uh, and so without connection to purpose, all of this work is significantly more difficult and and the more we can return to that question of why are we doing this why is this important and the more the answer to that is about our sense of purpose something that connects with us emotionally as well as intellectually the better chance we have of success mm-hmm. thanks i'm sure that's some of what julia has has been experiencing definitely and what was interesting when we when we started asking staff what matters to them it was wonderful to see that staff never once no one ever once communicated that they didn't like and believe in what they did that that was the piece that they held so dear to their heart what they what was getting in the way of that were all these other issues. And so if you said this is our purpose, these are the things we're going to address in order to, you know, to to make you feel more fulfilled in doing what you love, that that just resonated with everyone. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Question here about um, the healthcare environment maybe <laughs> being so hectic and so busy 
that, and a lot of what we're talking about here is very reflective, very thoughtful, kind of uh, almost creating a slightly, sometimes a different sort of space and dialogue. Barbara, what have you found in terms of where these, where this all can fit in? Um, I'm sure there's, that may be just another one of those barriers that has to be proven <laughs> to be gotten over, but yeah. Absolutely, Madge. As I mentioned, one of the cautions that leaders have about embarking on this is where am I going to find the time in an already overcrowded day? And so that's what I think Julie and the other prototype sites helped us learn so much about how can you have a, a brief huddle don't wait until you can have a big meeting. Um, that's where the earlier question about one-on-one, -on -one, small groups, having them in the moment and not expecting it to be a 20-minute conversation, but a four-minute conversation that piques people's interest, that gives you some information as a leader. So, and I am very serious about challenging leaders to say, how can I shorten a meeting? at least one this week, maybe by only 10 minutes, and redirect that 10 minutes immediately to having one of these conversations. Um, I always like to say, don't let best get in the way of better. So if you can free up 10 minutes, go with that, and then build from there. As you get enthusiasm, then people see you coming and welcome the conversation, rather than you having to convince them about why you're having this conversation. Julie, what did you find? I think what I might add to that is that I think it, why myself and a colleague was approached is not that we had special skills. It was that we were respected by our colleagues, um, you know, trusted by uh, leadership, and we were on the ground. We were there every day, day in and day out, working with everyone. You know, at 2 a.m. in the morning, we could all be sitting around and have these types of conversations. And that's when people really want to talk. It's not when they're asked a specific question at a meeting around a table. Okay. Uh, interesting that uh, people have uh, are are still sort of trying to figure out uh, how they get by um, <laughs> problematic people, and uh, also let me just come up here. Um, actually, a very quick question for you, Julie, about uh, how you manage to also frame this as something malpractice uh, your malpractice insurer could support uh, help sponsor. Sure. So um, for our malpractice in obstetrics, which is quite high, um, we in, in all of OB, um, we have we are mandated by our malpractice insurer to run simulation trainings every year, and so we, they're normally focused around clinical situations. And what we pose to our malpractice insurance is that, um, you know. Yes, we will run some clinical drills, but what's just as important is the way people relate to each other. And that can get in the way of a lot of work and patient care. And so we focused on that and said, um, you know, we, you have to have trust and respect amongst colleagues. And this is what we're going to do to build it. And therefore, that's going to give you better patient outcomes. And so we um, proposed that to them and they thought it was great. Okay. Thanks very much. Um, Jess, I'm just kind of curious in, I don't want to, I know we, we don't have time to, to mention, uh, all of these, but we, there were, there are some other prototyping sites and, uh, John, maybe we can just pop up one of those, uh, slides. I think it, it's this one. Hold on here. It's joy, uh, joy is a strategic priority. That's number 12 there. We've got some other organizations there. 
Um, are you still prototyping? Are you still learning from these organizations? And uh, curious if, uh, I don't know, if there's anything surprising or different from any of them. See, we've got IHI up there. Um, yeah. yeah, Derek <laughs> insisted we have some skin in the game. Yeah. So um, there were 11 really kind of forward-thinking sites from, you can see here, across um, a variety of settings who were willing to test some of what we had learned during our first, uh, second innovation cycle, which was interviewing folks inside and outside of healthcare. So we had um, generous leaders from Starbucks and Melno Innovations and Zappos um, to share what's worked for them. Um, also, places inside of healthcare were offered some changes. Um, and together, they made up a change package that these folks here, and, and including Julie, tested. Um, so you can see the full list in our, in our white paper in the appendix. Um, and, you know, they really run the gamut. We didn't have time in this um, short hour to get into all of the components of the framework, but there's lots of things that people can do, and it gets into a little bit more of the responsibilities at every level. Um, we have touched base with a lot of these prototyping sites, what um, I think John is going to tell us a little bit more about, but we will be launching another learning system, an opportunity for folks to join us and continue to learn, not just from what we've learned, but from each other in a community so that we can continue these conversations. Okay. Well, that's a good segue, John. Let's uh, let's pull that up uh, so we can make sure uh, that folks that leave uh, before the hour is up uh, have that information. Go ahead. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks, Madge. Uh, so, yeah, thanks, Jess, too. We, uh, we talked a lot today about uh, burnout and how it can affect quality and safety uh, and performance at your organization um, and what you can do to turn that burnout into engagement and join work. So um, that's why HI is proud to offer finding and creating join work, which is a course starting in March 2018. Uh, it's a 12-week virtual course that shares with you and your colleagues proven method methods to create a positive work environment, uh, one that fosters camaraderie, meaning, equity, and ensures the commitment to delivering high-quality care, even in stressful times. Um, this course is great for leaders, managers, or anyone in your system that's responsible for outcomes and quality, safety, or patient staff satisfaction. Uh, it'll also help your staff recognize the value of increasing joy and work at your organization and identify key leadership behaviors that raise, raise staff engagement to improve improve joy. Um, we'll also provide you with the framework to identify and test a couple changes to increase joy in work and the measures to track that improvement. So uh, we hope you'll join us for that. And for more information, visit IHI.org slash join work. Okay. Thank you very much, John. And uh, I want to thank everybody on the chat and everybody who's tuned in uh, at some point always in this program. At some point, people do get the hang of uh, speaking to one another and uh, you become kind of an instant uh, community and resource uh, for each other, and that becomes a valuable resource for you and for us, uh, as uh, Jess is suggesting the learning is really going uh, to continue. Um, I guess what one I, let's sort of go around the horn and uh, kind of some parting thoughts about you know watch this space and uh, just gave us a little hint at some of that. But uh, Barbara, one theme that I see in the questions is that is is always you have to sort of figure out what's the starting point uh, in an organization, almost take the temperature. Uh, and uh, I notice that many people are already you know. They're, they're very irritated about certain things. They feel like staff are overwhelmed, overworked. They're either apathetic. There's all this conflict. And these things do become rather fixed ideas in organizations. I'm sure you've encountered this. So in some ways, you have to prepare the field uh, to even get to step one of this framework, I would imagine. 
Well, it's back to the cautions I talked about. Those those aren't just invented in my head. Those are real experiences that people have of how I'm going to handle this. How am I going to address these items? And and I think Julie just gives wonderful examples of start small, start having the conversations with a few people. Maybe those you think might be more receptive to the conversation. And as Julie and her colleagues found, that that when you you talk about what really brings meaning to people's heart, why they show up every day, even the most negative of folks, um, will often get into what really matters to them. So some of the negativity we're hearing today is part of the systems we've created. So unraveling them takes some time, but starting small with those meaningful conversations. Not going after the biggest problem in the organization and sort of starting uh, putting a wedge in there somewhere. Well, thank you very much, uh, Barbara. Uh, So glad you're part of this, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you uh, again as learning continues. Derek, uh, any kind of final words for today? We're in the midst of something, a discovery in many ways. The thing that's really struck me from the chat, Madge, is a, a, a group of people who are feeling somewhat isolated here and they feel as if they don't have support and um and we thought this was going to be a heavy lift when we got started we 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 were we we didn't know whether uh this is uh, this would be an issue that people would take to but we had 1100 people registered for this uh, wihi today Uh, jessica and i presented on this recently in a session in london where we had more than a thousand people come to hear what we had to say. This is an idea whose time has come. And so I would encourage those people who are feeling that they want to make progress on joy and work, but they don't know where to start to find a friend, to have a have a brown bag lunch or, you know, uh, go for a glass of wine after work or something and just start to talk about it. Because my guess is that there, there there are many more people who feel exactly the same way as you do. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Derek. Jess, uh, you talked about the uh, the upcoming program, uh, the white paper. Obviously, I'm sure. I think the white paper has done very well in terms of downloads. Uh, I was I was thinking is you know just downloading that white paper and sitting with a small group and uh, kind of going through it if you think that's a good idea. Um, but and any thoughts going forward? No, I think that's a great idea. And we're committed to continuing to be in the space and to helping people with it. And if there's anything at all we can do, please get in touch. Um, There's also a track at the forum. So that's a great place to meet people. If you don't have a buddy at home just yet, um, it's not too late to register. There'll be a whole track focused on joy and work. um, So people can meet there as well. All right. Jess is referring to our national forum in December in Orlando. It's front and center on IHI.org. And uh, check out all the sessions there. There, and you can meet some of the people who are in the room today. Well, Julie, what happens next? Uh, that slide that had sort of what you're working on, and uh, I, I couldn't quite, we couldn't sort of zoom in there to see what was uh, on that, all on that board in the break room. So I imagine you're still going through some of that, but uh, do you see yourselves as kind of in the middle of that phase now, or are you moving into a new phase? What would you say? We're in a really exciting phase. We're in the middle of our compassionate communication training. And, you know, there was a lot of questions about what do you do about those, you know, um, those loud voices, those that negativity, those people who just won't buy in. Um, we had a lot of them in our group who, you know, were coming to this training and, you know, you were supposed to talk about feelings and needs and, you know, uh, um, respect for each other. And, and 
I got a great compliment afterwards from one of those people who I thought was just not going to be open to this. And she said, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. (laughs) And I thought, yes, I'm going to take that as a compliment. So to all those voices, just keep trying, just keep trying and you, you might break through. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Julie. Thanks for uh, talking about what's been going on at Mount Auburn. A reminder, when you look at all the bio slides on our show here, our our panelists today, there are email addresses. And if you have some burning uh, questions you'd like to ask, uh, please do so. You can also email info at IHI.org and we'll make sure to direct your question on the matter of CEU credit. The WIHI does not fit that mold, but anything at the forum uh, does. So, um, and other kinds of programs certainly that we have here at IHI. Well, I want to uh, thank our wonderful panel today and all your questions and thoughtful inquiry. It's It really is, it's a rich topic. And uh, I have to say, when we were planning it, the aha moment for me was, okay, this is really not necessarily being designed as the blueprint for addressing everything that's going on with burnout, but it's actually trans- another transformative way to think about the workplace and creating something that can really deal with any number of issues. So that's very exciting. I want to just throw in one other thing that you'll find in your research thing. The Open School here, IHI's Open School, has got a great new course on mindfulness. Uh, it puts some stuff together there. So um, there will be a link uh, to that. I don't know if Vicki can throw up that link right now, uh, but that's open for your perusal as well. Another great resource. So thank you, everyone. Coming up next on WIHI on October 12th, we're going to, uh, we're switching gears, but every, there is a through line many things. Uh, We're going to talk about quality improvement uh, that is helping uh, some community organizations make a big dent in chronic homelessness and also in the veteran population. So uh, interesting application there and on a very important issue. A reminder, you can download the chat, any slides we use for today. You can also find them on our website tomorrow. Check out the program, the podcast. Tell others uh, about the program today. We hope you will. Uh, Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. Great group helps make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, Val Weber, Mina Hadley, and Kiki Yee. And as always, it's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. Uh, the workforce couldn't matter more in this equation. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.